We started a study of the book of James a couple of weeks ago. We talked about who James is, and I want to remind you just briefly so that I don't do this too much every week for the next all of summer. But James, who wrote the book of James in the scripture, James is not the disciple James. There's a couple guys whose name was translated James in our New Testament. This is the half-brother of Jesus, okay? This, uh, this James, the other James, the disciple, he was martyred pretty early on after Jesus died and rose again in the early church. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, wrote this book. Now, who is James? So he's the brother of Jesus. Uh, his mom, after Jesus was born, she, her and Joseph married and had a bunch of kids. And um, James grew up with Jesus. And James was not a believer. James was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe as that Jesus was preaching his earthly ministry. James sat back and said, I don't buy it. You know, scriptures, we saw these together where he just, did, just didn't, he was not a believer. Him and his brothers and sisters. But as we, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, by the way, if you want a background to this more thoroughly, Facebook Live from two weeks ago, which would have been May 16th, and or uh, um, our website for the audio, uh, we talked about who James is and his backstory in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But James was a brother of Jesus who did not believe until Jesus actually did what Jesus said he was going to do. Jesus said he was going to die and rise again, and no one understood that's what the Messiah came to do. They had a different idea for the Messiah. And Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And then he went and pulled it off. And James, after he rose again, James believed. James became a believer. And not just a believer, but a follower of Jesus. And he gave his life. And he rose to leadership in the early church. He rose to leadership to where by the time we get to the middle of the book of Acts, James is kind of the most influential voice of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, solving problems and kind of speaking into matters there. And then um, James would eventually, history tells us that James would eventually uh, die uh, for the name of Jesus. The same people that uh, put uh, Jesus to death or called for his crucifixion incited the mob to stone James to death in the very streets of Jerusalem for believing in and preaching hope in the name of Jesus and, and pointing people to God. And so before, during that time of his leadership, this brother believer leader, James, uh, he wrote a book, he wrote a letter, he would call it the letter of James, and he sent it out because back in those days to, to get the word out from your local influence, you didn't have podcasts, you didn't have YouTube or anything like that. So if the word was going to get out about what you're doing, you had to well, write it and send it, right? And so James wrote some thoughts down and we call it the book of James. And this is the, beyond his local audience that he could teach and work with every week, this was his chance to spread something beyond his reach. Not just in distance, but in time. Here we are 2,000 years later, still studying his, his um, writings. So it's amazing. So as we look at what James has to say, I think if anyone is going to write one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, and send it out, maybe it's the most important thing they have to say. What was James' most important thing? And so he covers a lot of topics in these. And last week we saw the first few verses. And some of the topics in this letter, this book of James, some of the topics are very unique from each other, but some are kind of connected. And so we're going to look at certain verses every week for the rest of summer and go through James. Now, I'm going to say something that probably most of us know, but I just don't want to assume this. And so I'm going to say it as a reminder to us. 
because maybe this is, this is new, a new thought for whatever it's worth. But James, when he wrote this letter, did not write like chapters and verses. He didn't like sit down and say, James chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. He just wrote a letter. Like the believers like you and me later on came along and decided to reference these writings with chapters and letter and verse divisions so that we can study them and reference them easier by saying, find chapter 2, verse 14 or something, you know. That's for our sake that the things are divided into chapters. So as we study sections of verses over the summer with James, some of the topics that we'll study are very different. He changes, he changes topics within the, book, within the letter. But sometimes what we study from one week to another will be semi-connected to the previous thing he talked about. Different but similar or a connection bridge. And so next week will be a very different topic. He's going to change gears completely. But today there's a little link to what we studied last week. Because last week James began his letter by saying, when troubles come your way, when testing comes your way, when troubles and testing come to you, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Which is a strange thing to say. But he says, because through testings, through troubles, your faith and your endurance have a chance to grow, you'll grow stronger, and you'll be stronger for you for future things you face in life, but you'll be stronger for others who need you. You'll be stronger, and, he said, your endurance will grow, and you'll gain endurance. And, and so he, he, he had a great talk, and then at the end of that, uh, the end of that uh, section we studied last week was verse 12, and he said this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Now, we talked about testing last week, testing and troubles, and that God blesses those who patiently endure that. But now he's going to add this thought that we kind of nodded to, because they are similar in a way, but he's going to kind of lean more into the temptation side of the conversation. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. And as we saw then, he said, afterwards they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who, who love him. And we made a statement last week that, that I want to remind you as we transition, and that is that good things come to those who persevere. Good things come to those who endure and, uh, and who persevere. Now, with today in mind, we want to notice what James is shifting from the troubles and things conversation into the temptations conversation. And here's what we're going to see. And by the way, today we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, if you want to follow along. And so in this talk, James is going to talk about temptation, what temptation is and where temptation leads us, what temptation is and where it leads us in the end. But what he does is something that I don't want us to rush past. He bookends the temptation talk. He sandwiches it with a reminder on both sides that we should have the right perspective towards God, that instead of being blaming towards God, we should be grateful to God for all that he's done. And so he kind of starts off this way, and I want you to see it with me, beginning with verse 13. He says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. He says, God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. He says, don't, don't say God is tempting me. So when I grew up, there was a little saying we used to run around, and it was common. Maybe it's, it's way before my time, I'm sure, and it probably is still around in some level. But I remember as a kid, people would say, the devil made me do it. 
The devil made me do it, right? And uh, that could be someone maybe being serious, like literally saying, the devil made me do it. Or maybe it was a kind of a joke for some of us to say, or it was something that the preachers would preach about, don't say that, you know, or whatever. But uh, what's interesting is as I've grown older, I've realized that a lot of people in the church world, a lot of religious people, sometimes we have a different version of that, that we spiritualize and have a, another kind of a bad thinking, we, we, we word it better, but basically our version is, God made me do it, you know? And we can package it under st- different ideas of who God is and, and, and use the right terms to make it sound lofty. But ultimately, yeah, yeah I can't help it. I'm just, you know, what, what choice did I have? I just, God made me do it. It just it is what it is. And if we wouldn't say God made me do it, because that sounds weird, we might say, well, God tempted me. Hey, if God didn't want me to rob that bank, he should have answered my prayer for a million dollars. I would have had to do it. His fault, you know? I mean, and, or, or whatever. You know, if God didn't want me to go off and do something stupid or run off with that person or be that way, he should have just not, he should have answered my prayer to take those desires away or he should have left better or made my wife treat me better or a thousand other dumb things we do to basically say, if, if life would have gone the way I wanted, if God would have behaved the way I wanted him to behave, I wouldn't have been tempted to do that. So God is the one putting me in this spot. It's kind of his fault. And James is starting this conversation on temptation by saying, don't, don't go there. That's not what God's about. That's not what he's doing. So he's going to kind of turn it around. But before I give, get there, I'm going to make a statement later on that I want us to remember. But I want to set it up with a similar statement right now to get us thinking. And that is this, that we tend to blame God for things that aren't his fault. We just tend to blame him for just like, just things like, well, why did that, why did God do that? Why did he let that happen? Why did he, you know, and, and, you know, let that come in my life. There's a lot of brokenness in this world because of the freedoms and gifts God's given us. And sometimes that mess spills over and it's easy to lay that at the feet of God. And we can emotionally do that when it's convenient because, you know, or we can even intellectually do it. But whether it's intellectual or emotional or any spectrum, to look at the world and to say, I'm going to take my lens and find a way to lay things at the feet of God that, that don't belong there. It's a dangerous spot to be in. And we, we're good at doing this in life, aren't we? We blame everybody. We're not just God. I mean, we blame it's my, it's my parents' fault because they raised the way they raised me, and it's my spouse's fault because of the way they treated me, and it's my children's fault because they stressed me out, and it's, my, it's, it's the government's fault. It's everyone's fault. It's everyone's but mine. We tend to blame others and everybody in God sometimes. And James is going to bring the subject of temptation back, and he's going to put it on us. And so he, 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 he says, don't blame God. Instead, he says in the next verse, verse 14, he begins by saying temptation. Actually, temptation comes from our own desires. <laughs> he puts it back on us. Temptation comes from our own desires, yours, mine, right? He says, we got to own that. Boy, it's so important. It's easy to look outward to cast blame for our struggles and even for our temptation. But one of the things we would all do really well to learn to say is to learn to say three beautiful words, that's on me. But we could use a lot of good old-fashioned accountability in culture today. Couldn't we in culture generally just use some accountability? It's easy to blame other people, other groups of people, of systems, others. We all do it. We all do it on our own levels, family, history, experience. We just blame. We talked a few weeks ago about guilt. And guilt's a big subject because God forgives and restores and we got to deal with guilt. But the secret to dealing with guilt is to confess it. 
just to confess it. And when we admit and own it, God's faithful to forgive. But some people, the way they handle guilt is not to confess. They, they use guilt and they use it to blame. We blame. We blame others. Our upbringing, society, everything. And there's just a lack of accountability that's dangerous if we're not careful. And when we can learn to sit there and say, that's on me. I may have had some tough circumstances, but that's on, that, that, that's, I did what I did. Look, reactive people are people who say my circumstances were difficult, and so my reaction is justified. But I think to be proactive enough to sit there and say, I can't control what's coming to my world and what's coming to my life, but I can choose to do what I do from here, that kind of thinking, that kind of ownership is the way to live is to sit there and say, people who've had it worse than me did, did the right thing, and people who had it better than me did the wrong thing. And what I do with my situation might be complicated by others, but ultimately what I do is about me. When my, my temptations, my struggles are about me, my actions, good and bad, that, that's on me. Those are good words of ownership that we should all embrace from time to time. It helps some problems between people. Nothing worse than someone coming to who hurts you and that you shocked and you're trying to figure out the relationship and as they talk to you after they hurt you they tell you why it's your fault like wait now i'm doubly hurt you know and and we do that to others we're always pushing blame instead of just owning it and confessing it that's on me those are good words let's all say those words together for practice are you ready that's on me let's do that again ready that's on me Those are some good words. And James is trying to take us, our attention off of turning towards others and specifically towards blaming God for our temptations. And he says, instead, our temptations come from our own desires. Verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That word entice is a good fishing term. Anybody like like to fish here? Fisher people? Sure, men and women? Okay. You like to fish? You know, you know how to use the word, the word lure is, is here. You want to bait that hook and throw it on the water. You're trying to lure a fish to come and bite that thing so you can drag it out of the water and have a good meal later on, right? And it's this good stuff. And that's what temptation is. It comes from our own desires and we look at things and, and we don't look at the danger. We, look, we don't look at the hook. We look at, oh, I want that. And we are enticed. We're lured by our desires, and if we bite the bait, sometimes we watch it drag us away in life in some part of our life. So temptation does. How many of us have done that along the way? And then afterwards we're like, why did I do that? Why did I fall for that? Why did I believe that? Why did I justify that? Right? Because we do. That's where we tend to sit there and blame somebody else. But ultimately, our own desires entice us through temptation, lure us to bait, to drag us away. James says this in verse 15. He says, these desires, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So these desires, these desires will lead or give birth to actions, to sinful actions. You know, these wrong desires, bad actions, sinful actions. Desires lead to actions. Now, here's the thing. The desires are what they are. I think we should be careful, you know, sometimes we fight the, the tendency as humans and even religious humans do it worse in the name of God. We, we look down on people for their desires that are different than ours. 
We look at people's desires and we, and we don't relate to their desires because we don't normalize theirs. And so we're like, y -y -y. And I don't think the, the guilt, the problem is not to shame people. There's no solution to shaming people over the way that their desires are different than yours or mine. We all, we're all different. We're all broken in different ways. And before you get down on yourself or anyone else because of the kind of things we desire, you can't always help in this body of flesh what we desire in a thousand fronts. But it's a different story when the things that I particularly, you particularly desire becomes my or your justification to action. And when I move into action, all of a sudden I've moved into a space where my desires are now not just, I, that's, that's in me, I, I can't help it, now I've chosen to do something, I've acted. And if I let my desires tempt me, and if I dwell on them, if I look at them, if I, if I stare at them, we discussed this a few weeks ago, like it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Because if you sit close and look at it long enough, you're going to eat the cheesecake in the fridge, you know? And so anyhow, what, what happens is, is our desires, if we let them, they give birth to actions or sinful actions in our lives. And that's the problem. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I love that phrase, allowed to grow. In other words, that sin when it's come to completion or when it's finished. Because sometimes when you do something wrong, you pay for it immediately. There are just some things in life where you do them and, and so you just immediately, like, there's no give at all. And isn't it funny that it's different for different people? Like, have you ever been the kind of person that just feels like, you know, maybe it's Murphy's Law? Like, when you do, everyone else cheats, you know, the, the rules or does something wrong and they seem to get by with it. But the one time that you do, go and do something like that, the hammer comes down and you're like, oh, man. Everyone else gets away with that. And sometimes that's how it feels. Like you do something wrong once and boom, there comes the consequence. But a lot of times, a lot of times what happens to all of us is we do something we shouldn't do. We act in a way we shouldn't act. And oftentimes there is not a consequence. We don't feel a whole lot different. And it's not a big deal. And so then we, we kind of step back and feel bad. Then we dabble again. Step back and feel bad. Do it again. After a while, we just kind of let it keep growing in our lives. In fact, we get to the spot where we begin to justify things that we used to not justify and say, well, it's not really a big deal. But when sin's allowed to grow and when it's finished, it always leads, it gives birth to death. Death's a big word. It could be physical death, right? It could be physical death that comes from sin. But sometimes it's not physical. Sometimes the death that we experience is death to a relationship. Sometimes a, a sinful action can be death to a marriage. Can lead to death to a relationship with a family, with a child, with a parent, uh, death to a friendship. Sometimes that sinful action can lead to death of our financial well-being, or lead to death to our career, or to um, our emotional health and well-being, to our um, to our reputation, to a thousand areas. Sin, when we let temptation take us on a path to wrong actions, that sin leads to consequences, leads to death. On some level. And, that's, and look, let's be honest. What I'm saying, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to tease out the verse that James gave us here through the Spirit, Holy Spirit's uh, writing through him. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to look at this verse with you deeper. But we know this. Come on, we know this. It's not like it's, this is a big jump. We've all done there. We've all done, done that. We've all had desires that we followed into sinful actions. And we've all experienced consequences from those actions in life, haven't we? On some small or big way, or we know someone who has. I mean, we all have. And James is saying that's what happens with temptation. That's how it goes. 
And what we see in this verse is the order of temptation from front to end. Desires lead to actions, lead to consequences. Desires or temptations lead to sinful actions, lead to death. That's the order. You want a good example of how this works? You want a good Bible example of this in action? Here's some homework for you to do on this, on this uh, week. Go back and read the, the Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve. That'd be a great thing to read to illustrate this. It's interesting when you read it because it's interesting as we read uh, and understand um, um, you know, this picture of our first parents and um, we read how that they stepped into a spot where God created them and gave them life and gave them each other because it's not good that we're alone and, uh, and gave them this whole garden and, and purpose and everything else in life. But then he puts this tree and says, hey, eat whatever you want to, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that one or else you'll die. And it kind of goes back into this conversation of James earlier about, about you know, blaming God for our temptations. It'd be easy to look at that story and say, well, then why, if God didn't want them to eat that tree, why did he put it there? And the obvious answer should be because he wanted them to have an option. He wanted them to have a choice, right? Like now they have the option, because otherwise, what good is it? You know this, I think. What good's a relationship if the person has no choice? You might want to control someone you care about so they make you feel good, but after a while, you're like, well, you're not even doing this of your own free will. I want you to choose to want me and choose to love me and choose to engage with me. And God gave man an option. He said, look, you want to go the other way, there's another way. But you don't want the results of it. You don't want to go that way. Should have called it the tree of death, but that would have been a real discourager too. Don't eat off the tree of death. Note to self, don't eat off the tree of death. That's all, you know, but he, the knowledge of good and evil, it's a temptation. That's what the serpent came along and the Satan comes along. God wasn't over there saying, hey, eat, come over here. <laughs> eat this fruit. But you said not to. Ah. No, it was the devil comes along. The serpent comes along and says to her, eat. But wait a minute, God said not to. Oh, this is the knowledge of good and evil. This is, you're missing out. God doesn't want you to have his insight. See, he's holding, you could be like him. He's got this whole other world that's not opened up to you and you can just break free from those rules and break free from that perspective. You're missing out. Don't look at God as a good, a good benefactor who gave you life and gave you all this. Don't look at him in that lens. Look at God through the lens of holding you back and hiding from you and being a control freak. Oh, if you see him that way, you could be like him. And she bought it. And she was enticed. And then she gave it to her husband who said, I don't know, but I don't know. But then he saw her pretty eyes batting, and he's like, oh, I'm with you, girl. And they were both tempted. They both sinned. They both fell. And that whole story is a picture of temptation and how it works. We come across things that we begin to look at our desires and our temptations that we begin to justify. Instead of saying God's been good for all he's done and God's good to even warn me what not to do in life, I think he's holding me back. I think that it's stupid. I think these, the whole idea of morality and this inner struggle I have and all this voice in the Bible, ah, just push it all aside. Because I want to justify what I want to justify. And we justify our desires and we follow them into actions. That those actions, that sin, gives birth to death, gives birth to consequences. And then afterwards we're like, well, why did God? <laughs> 
Adam and Eve. Read the story this week. It's a good story that illustrates this verse. This verse is the formula from temptation's front to finish. Before we get mad at God, before we get mad at God for consequences that freedom brings, let's ask ourselves if we want to lose individual soul liberty. In other words, we're mad at God for the consequences that my decisions bring. God, why did you let me, let me do that then? Before we get mad at him for my consequences that my decisions bring, or get mad at him for consequences that other people's freedoms bring. Ask ourselves, do we really, really want to lose individual soul liberty? Because all of us really appreciate that we have this beautiful thing from God of options, of choice. And to sit back and say, well, I want that because I'm pretty good with it. And so God, don't control me. Don't control me. I, I, I got this. I mean, I, I should do it. I know it's better for me than anyone, including God. I know it's best for me. And then to turn around and then when I do something wrong, say, well, I, I would have, I know what's best. So if, if that wasn't best, then if, if, why, did God, why did God let me do that? And then we turn around and we look at other people and say, well, they shouldn't have freedom of choice because they don't make good choices. I do. If God give me freedom of choice, but not other people, that's called playing God, right? If I could just let God control all the other people but me, really, I just want to run the whole universe through you. And if I can't, then you're not good. That's a bad perspective theologically. And so what happens is, if we're not careful, we'll come to God and look at the, at the freedom and the consequences that come with freedom, and, and we'll blame him. And before you blame him for that, ask ourselves, do we really want to lose individual soul liberty? Because it's an it's a, it's a all or nothing. You can't pick it for you and not for others. We have it or we don't, and we want it, but then we blame God for it. Humans tend to blame God either way. And they offer a no-win situation towards him. It's, it's kind of like having a, a child grow up in a house. You know the occasional young person, a teenager, young adult, who hates their parents' rules, hates the you know, boundaries, lies about, cheats away around them, breaks the rules, does their own thing. And then in the end, blames their parents for letting it happen. Or they get older, they blame their parents both. Occasionally I see a young person who will say, you were, you were too controlling and didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Also, you were too careless and let me do things I shouldn't have done. It's like, which is it? I don't know. Nice to meet a perfect young adult. I mean, and, 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 and it's amazing how sometimes as people get older, they realize, oh, that's on me. You know? Or we should hopefully. Hopefully we all get to the point where we begin to say, that's on me. But sometimes with God, we don't. We're that way with God. We, we, we want our freedoms. We want our, our ability to do what we want to do. We hate those voices that tell us not to do what we want to do sometimes. But we turn around and look at the mess that choice brings and we, like, we get mad at God for it because of our choices, because of other people's choices that affect us. I was on a highway earlier, uh, last night coming back from Michigan. And on the road, um, Michelle was driving and um, uh, I w we looked up and you know, it was getting dark at this point or get, starting to get dark, pretty dark. And um, the car, there's a car up in front of us there and this person was, I mean, they could have just been really sleepy. That's very possible because that's the same, it would be the same kind of result probably. But they were either sleepy or they were stoned out on something, man. And I mean, it was like, I mean, all the cars started backing up behind them. No one wanted to pass. So there's like, you know, three lanes and this guy just letting this guy do his thing. And finally someone gets enough guts to kind of get there and just get past them real fast, you know. And you know, someone called the police, you know. And what happens when that guy is driving in that condition and hurts somebody else? Why is God? Why does God... See, he, I want God to stop him from having the freedom to do something like that. 
but I also want God to give me the freedom to live my life. I want choices, I just don't want consequences. And I want choices for me, but not for other people because I don't like theirs. And, and it, but it's all part of the same package. And so we, we just kind of come to God and say, well, it's his fault. But that's our, our own desires. That's not me. Our own desires as humans lead us to paths that bring to sinful actions. And those sinful actions lead to death and consequence. And that's just part of the beautiful, ugly, broken world we live in. Here's what we tend to do. It's like that teenager I mentioned earlier sometimes. Um, I'm not saying all teens are this way. I'm saying, I'm saying a lot of adults in church are this way. And they're on, they're on platforms and they're pastors and leaders and deacons and elders sometimes. But here's what we tend to do with God. We tend to say, God's trying to control me. I don't like it. That Bible is all day. I don't like the things it says. And I don't like that voice inside of me, that spirit inside of me that's telling me not to do that. I just want to quench that, that spirit, quiet that voice. And I don't like those people, my, whether it's my parents or whether it's influencers in my life or the pastor at church or the person in my small group. I don't like those people trying to tell me what I should and should not do. God's trying to control me. And then we turn around and say, why didn't God stop me? You know? <laughs> God's trying to control me. Why didn't God stop me? It, it, it's crazy. And James is addressing this. James is saying, no, don't put that on God. Your own desires, that's on me. That's on you. Draw us away. They entice us. They lure us to the bait that brings us to bad actions, that brings us to bad consequences. The only way to avoid consequences is to remove choice. And none of us want that. None of us want that. Really, we don't. If we could have it today to take all the consequences of, of our, our life and the world around us, we would instantly want that choice back. Instantly. So here's the thing. I, I said earlier, I said that we tend to blame God for things that aren't his fault. I want to kind of say it this way. We tend to blame God for things that we should thank him for. Like we tend to blame him for things that we should, we should be thankful. Like the very thing we're blaming him for is something we should be thanking him for. And so because of that, James kind of does this. James walks into this, this warning about temptation and where temptation leads us to, which is consequence. James takes us and begins by saying, don't blame God, but he closes by saying, instead, thank God, because God is good. And so in the last couple of verses, he points us to God's goodness. Verse 16, he says this, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Who created all the lights in the heavens? He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. James says we can look away from the subject of temptations and actions and consequences and look back at God for who he is. Every good thing came from him, every perfect thing comes from him. He's a good, good father. He loves us and he has given us all these things. And until we see him in the right lens, we'll never respond in a healthy way. Until we see him for who he is and quit laying the wrong things at the wrong feet will never see him in a way that will help us go forward from here. And so, because James has asked us in this verse to pause and consider God's goodness, I want us to take a moment together to recall God's blessings. And when I say God's, I mean God's macro. There's the macro and there's the micro. Like the micro blessings of God for you might just be you couldn't find your keys, you prayed and you found your keys, yay, thanks God. Or, or you know, you had a relationship problem and you prayed and it worked out, or you were stressed and you prayed and you felt God's presence. 
there's a zillion micro blessings that every day and every week of our lives we experience God if we are watching. But on a macro level, on the big level, there's also some big things that God does universally that are as good and as perfect gifts from our Father who hands them down to us every day. And until we see those in the middle of the mess, we'll miss his goodness. So what are God's goodness? Well, there's a few I want to remind us of. We've kind of already stated them, but let me summarize them as we wrap up the sermon here. What are God's good gifts? The first good, good gift of God is life. Thank God for life. Like, right? I mean, you're alive today. I'm alive. I mean, not just alive. I mean, like, we're here. Like, you are able to get out of bed and function mentally and physically to be here. Life is a gift. Many people, I mean, things happen. Think about the fact that you were born and you're, you were conceived and all the way through birth. I mean, we've been through this as a couple. I mean, sometimes you lose a, a child in, in the womb and things happen. I mean, you were born. Right? And then you live past infancy. I mentioned this how we, last week, how the world used to be such a less healthy place that it was common for kids a few hundred years ago to have little toy doll sets with little toy caskets as part of the collection because death was a regular part of your family at one time in history. We live in a great time where life is, and life expectancy and life quality is better. Parts of the world today that are so much worse off. By the way, if we live in America today, or if you're watching this and you live in a developed nation, as we, we, we've often remembered, we have a really good, we're like the top two or three percenters of the world population of eight billion plus people with all the good we have. We might look at the people around us who are also rich and say they're richer than me, so I, my life is bad. But we've been given life, and in this place, we've been given a good life, man. And life is a gift, and we have it. And I'm thankful, for, I hope you're thankful for today. So in the middle of all the, 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 the troubles of last week's message, the testings or the temptations of today's, don't forget to look at God and say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for my life. When's the last time you just woke up and said, God, thank you that I woke up today? Thank you for this week. Thank you for the time I've had. Thank you for what I, my health. Thank you for the things I enjoy. And I have all these years. God's good gifts. Life. And life in a macro existence is just all of us are here because God created us. In love, in love God created what are God's good gifts? Life and also choice. Like he didn't make us like puppets on a string with robots who say, why do I do right? Because I have no choice. I just do. I mean, he gave us choice. And yes, that's messy. And God is so big and so powerful that he could be sovereign over all and give us choice and still be God over all. He's just awesome like that. But the choice part's a beautiful thing. I know that it means choice means I can make the wrong choice, right? And again, if God is, is, is like in the Garden of Eden, we see the first story, it, it, and, and it's in our own lives as well. If God is love, and God is light, and God is life, and God is good, and we, and we sit there saying, ah, I'm going to choose the other way. I'm going to choose not God. I'm going to go my own way. Then, of course, we'll see the opposite of love and life and light and good. We'll see hate and dark and death and bad. But God says, I want you. I made you. I made you for a relationship. Here's a gift for you. And we all, want, we all cherish this gift. We don't always cherish where it takes us, but we all cherish it. And if we could take away the back end, we'd still want on the front end to choose choice all over again starting tomorrow. That's God's good gift. And, go, and love God created. And love God gave us freedom. But God's good gifts also include warning. 
Thank God for a warning. I know we don't always like the warnings, but thank God for the warnings. Thank God for the scriptures that teach us. Thank God for the people in our lives. Thank God for parents, hopefully, that spoke into our lives and for influencers in our lives that speak to us and talk about what's right and wrong. Thank God for warning. I mean, it's a gift. It's a blessing. It's always fun if we're proud or we don't want to be told what to do. I feel like someone's trying to control us. That's not the case. It's a gift. If I was driving down the road today and I, I, it was dark and I saw all of a sudden this a massive sinkhole opens up and the car's going to drive off and kill us and we stop barely and I jump out of the car and we're waving our arms and saying, hey, hey, don't, don't stop the car, don't go, you're going you're gonna to crash and die. Imagine someone saying, oh, quit trying to control me, I hate people like that, it's my life, it's my life, you know. Hopefully be like, thank you, thank you. And God is so good to give us life and to give us freedom and to give us choice, but to give us warning. And instead of balking at that, let's thank him for it. Let's thank him that we're reminded not to chase, to bite the bait, to chase the lure, to be enticed away with our own desires to bad ends. Let's listen to his voice speaking to us through his spirit. Let's listen to his word. Let's listen to those people he put in our path. That's a gift from God. Life, choice, warning, but then last of all, after we sometimes make the wrong choices anyhow, God's good gift is redemption. That God has given us redemption. Mm. That he would step into our choices and our mess, the beautiful, complicated, ugly, redemptive mess, he'd just step into it and say, let me fix it. Let me make things right. That's the gospel. The word gospel means good news. What's the good news? The good news is that God is love. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The good news is that God has loved that, that in that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us because Christ died for us. On the cross, Jesus said, let me show you what God's love does. He will bear, he, he bore our sins. He bore the death that ultimately comes from our sins ultimately. He died for us. And then he rose again and destroyed the power of death to say to us, life is eternal. I made you for a relationship with me. I've paid the price. I've done what I can to restore our relationship, God says. At my expense, he says. And his arms are open wide, but once again, in love, he lets us choose. Will we receive his love? Will we believe that? Will we turn to him? Or will we choose the not, choose the opposite? Choose to say, I don't need you, God. It's my life. God says, here I am. His good gifts, life, choice, warning, and redemption. And James closes this section in verse 18 by saying that God chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we out of all creation became his prized, his prized possession. Let me say this as we wrap up. You, you are loved by God. He made you for relationship and loves you for who you uniquely are. Your struggles don't scare him away. Your life matters to him. Like a good father, 
He warns you of the danger of bad choices and points you to a better way. He's sad when you insist on learning the hard way, and he's there for you when, you're, when you turn to him. You are valued, and you are loved. And so in the end, it becomes a matter of trust. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God, do you look at the lens of the world and say, I'm mad at any, the idea of controlling me from my life. Also, I'm mad at God for letting things happen with, my, with people living there. Do you look at God through a, the, a lens of blame or do you look at God through a lens of gratitude? Do you believe that he is a good God, that he is love, that he loves you? that he's given these good gifts. If you see him that way, if you believe you have faith in his love, then you will trust him. You will trust his guidance over your own desires. You'll avoid a whole lot of heartache and experience your greatest purpose if you'll trust in his love, if you'll believe that, if you'll have faith enough to put it in his hands, to follow him. So live like you're loved. What if, what if we lived like we were loved? What a difference would that make? What if we lived like we were loved? Because you are.